Romans chapter 8. This is not our text, but take a look at this passage of scripture that says in Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory except in, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems an odd place to glory. Why is it that a person would take this very picture of the pinnacle of death, of shame, of exposure, of of utter abasement and take the cross and say, unless it is the cross, I will not glory. The place of the greatest suffering, the greatest shame, the greatest separation. Yet it is through the cross that we have our great sonship, our security. We glory in the cross because of what is on the other side of the cross. What it is that the cross bridges that you and I could never have made a way to. We know we could not have the joy were it not for his judgment. We could not have the pleasure of sonship were it not for the pain of his suffering. So we glory in his suffering. May I ask a bold question this morning? Do we glory in our own suffering just as we glory in his? Did his suffering have a purpose? And the answer is, of course, his suffering was never intended to be an end in itself. And may I submit that this is true of our suffering as well. And today we will look at what we will refer to as the other side of suffering. Were it not for what the cross provided, we would not find some wonderful glory in the cross. But the other side of his suffering provides us this means of the the pinnacle of our glorying. The Bible says, beginning in Romans chapter 8, if you are there, look with me down at verse number 16. Romans 8, beginning in verse 16, the Spirit itself, this is the Holy Spirit that we've been wonderfully introduced to. In Romans chapter 8, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, allow me to say that again, for I reckon, I have concluded, I have summarized, he's saying, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. By way of review, when the Apostle Paul has been opening this passage of Scripture, he's been helping us understand some things because of the Holy Spirit of God. What is it that we have? Well, we already have Spirit-led sonship. 
The, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God doesn't just make us family friends. He says, no, 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 no. I want to do so much more than that. I want to make you part of the family. Every believer, every person who has come into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who has been born again, born a second time, born from above, born of the Spirit. Every person is now a part of the family of God. And the Holy Spirit of God is the one who bears witness to the same. The Bible says that as we open up Romans 8, 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It is this double witness. He stands by our side and he says, yes, they have claimed you and I am here to give this double witness to the same. If you've ever been truly saved, passed from death to life, from separation to no separation, you have one who stands at your side and he says, yes, they belong father to our family. Well, as sons of God, we saw that last week we are both led by the Spirit and we are loved by the Father. But clearly God has intended more than simply making us his children. He doesn't leave us there. So let's begin today by looking first at the security of our sonship. I am a son. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let's look at the supply of our sonship. The supply of our sonship. Look at verse number 17, Romans chapter 8. The Bible says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Okay, there is much that we have at this very moment because we are in Christ Jesus and we are the children of God. But let me ask you this, how many of you ever had a grandmother that might use the expression, save your fork, okay? Did your grandmother ever tell you, hey, 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 now save your fork, okay? You knew that if she said save your fork, something good is a coming, all right? The Holy Spirit of God is helping us understand through Romans chapter 8, listen, in a sense, save your fork. I know you have something of my supply right now, but... But in a sense, even though what you have right now is good, the best is yet to come. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 begins with an incredible statement. It tells us that we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Can you even begin to imagine what does this fully mean? I am... Heirs of God. Okay, that means that, that somewhere, so to speak, in the will, my name is mentioned. Okay, that's pretty good news. I, I don't know if you've ever been mentioned in a will before or not, but I suspect that that might be kind of cool. Like, oh, hey, my name is mentioned. I'm an heir of something. But he doesn't stop with, you are an heir of God. He goes on and he uses an expression. He doesn't even just add, okay, you're an heir of God and an heir with Jesus Christ. Instead, he says, you are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, if a father had, had four children, we would suspect that typically, now cultures would do this differently, even cultures in the day of Rome would do this differently, but we might suspect today that, that um, 
then let's just say a father died, he left his estate to his four children. We would suspect that it might be equitable if it was divided equally among them. And so each child receives 25% of the estate. They are heirs of the estate. But this is not what is intended in Romans chapter 8. When when Paul uses, under the direction of God the Holy Spirit, the word joint heirs, it means that we are now fully equal members of the inheritance. It means that whatever belongs to Jesus concurrently, at the same time, all that belongs to him also all belongs to you. You don't just get a fraction. It's not that your name is mentioned in the will. It means that what belongs to Jesus belongs to you. This is, this is an incredible supply. A, a man named J.B. Phillips once wrote, all that Christ claims as his will belong to all of us as well. So what is his then is ours. Now it's difficult for us to process the wealth that we have as full members of the family of God and joint heirs with Christ. It means that we are co-participants with Jesus Christ. What is his is mine. Clearly to be an heir is something wonderful. But to be a joint heir with Christ, even more so, what Paul is claiming is that this is the state for every child of God. We don't just own a share of Christ's righteousness, of his standing, of his future glory, We are joint heirs. I can stand before God as fully as righteous as does Jesus Christ. It is why you are invited to go with boldness into the presence of the Father. I am a joint heir. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 21, the Bible says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. All are yours. What what a statement he is making to every child of God. What belongs to God belongs to us. And then we might ask a little bit further, well, what belongs to God? The Bible says in Psalm 89, verse 11, the heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. He's saying everything God belongs to you. So all are yours. Again, what a statement. It all belongs to him. So it all belongs to you. It is your inheritance. And then we might ask, if you're a couple steps ahead of me, we might ask if it all belongs to us, then why can't we claim it all right now? Good question. And I think Paul anticipates and answers the question. So in Romans chapter 8 verse 19, Paul says this. He says, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, there are some things that are yours right now. In fact, you hold, so to speak, the, 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 the paperwork, the credentials to say, listen, I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. 
And I've given you the first fruits of that promise. I've given you what we might refer to as a down payment on that which is still to come. Christians have tasted of the blessings of heaven through the ministry of the Spirit. Just as the nation of Israel went into the land of promise and, and they tasted of those first fruits, that they had something early, but there was so much more to come. Okay, how many of you in this room are married right now? How many of you are married? Raise your hand. Okay, lots of married people in here. Uh, how many of you are engaged to be married? That's an interesting question. Raise your hand if you're engaged to be married. Oh, there's a couple right here. Well, how handy is that? Okay, so you're engaged to be married. Now, I'm asking a, a loaded question and I don't know the answer, so I, I hope you have the right one. Um, when did you, how long have you been engaged? A couple months. Okay, here's the big question. Did he give you a ring when he asked you to marry him? Yes. Yes, okay. Most of us do that, okay, because we know we need help, all right? So we understand this could get tricky and diamonds are a girl's best friend. Okay, so we come up with the goods. When I asked Julie to marry me, I, I got down on one knee. Will you marry me? And she's looking at me like, where are the goods, okay? That's not true, but, but there is some sense of like, okay, yes, but, but is there something? Do you know what God the Holy Spirit is? He is the down payment on the promise of God. He's the first fruits. He's like the engagement ring, so to speak. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm giving you this, but there is so much more to come. God in the New Testament, he uses the same picture. He says, I'm gonna offer you something now, but there is more to come. And while the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24, 1, which means that this is ours as well, let's not make the mistake of thinking that this is the greatest aspect of our inheritance. Let me say that again. I don't want us to miss it. All are yours. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And, and if I'm a joint heir, that means it's all mine. But what is the greatest part of your inheritance? Really, is it the gift or is the greatest part of your inheritance the giver of the good gift? See, sometimes we become so enamored with the gift that we fail to give due reverence to, acknowledgement of, understanding that this is only a good gift because it came from a good giver. The psalmist understood this. In Psalm 73, beginning in verse 25, he said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you know what this word portion is communicating to us? It's saying he is my inheritance it was first published in a collection of stories way back in 1954. It was told by a man named Ivor Powell. And he told the story of a rich man who died and had no heirs. Maybe you have heard the story referenced. When his household goods were being auctioned off, there was an elderly lady there. She was dressed poorly, quite humbly. And as the items were being auctioned, she alone offered the bid for a picture of the man's son. The man's son died at an early age. She had been the child's nursemaid. 
and she felt highly, kindly toward the man's son. She bought the picture and she took the picture home. As she was preparing to hang it, she noticed on the back there was a bulge on the back of the framed picture. She took a pen knife and she sliced very carefully the back so as to not damage the picture. Out came an envelope and inside the envelope was the missing will of the man who had died, leaving everything of his possessions, his estate, to the person who got the picture of his son. There is some sense that when you get the son, Jesus Christ, it, it is not about the lesser things. If you have the son, you truly are possessor of it all. I have today the supply of sonship. I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ, an heir, of course, of God. Is there anything more that I should expect in this life? I have the first fruits, the promise of the Spirit. Is there anything else that I should anticipate, expect in this life today? And the answer again is, of course, yes. So I have the supply of my sonship. What else should I anticipate? What I'm about to mention next is something that we often recoil from. In fact, many times pastors, preachers, preach in such a way that we think we should never anticipate this. I should not have to expect this because I am a blood-bought child of God. I, I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Why would I ever even anticipate this, that this would be mine? We anticipate this because there is clearly something in it for us. First, we understood the supply of our sonship. Secondly, we understand the suffering of the same. The suffering of my sonship. The Bible says, beginning at the second part of verse number 17, Romans chapter 8. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is the lot of every follower of Jesus. It is the reality of this fallen, broken world. Is there suffering in the Christian life? That certainly is a rhetorical question. And I don't want to trivialize the suffering that many at this moment are facing. Some are facing the loss of a child. Some the loss of a parent. Others the loss of a spouse. Some the loss of a friend. Others may be dealing with sickness and it is frightening, debilitating. For some, it is a very long journey, day in and day out. And for each who has experienced the reality and the depths of physical suffering, for them, it is very present, very real. Others are dealing with the hurt of a broken marriage, a wayward child, a distant parent, the loss of some significant relationship. Many struggle today with loneliness, anxiety, depression, a broken heart, 
other matters that are the pressures of our lives today. And then we stand back and we start to scratch our head and we say, why? Why am I struggling with this? News comes upon us at times like a blast. We feel like Job who gets one discouraging message after another, after another, and they seem to add on us in ways that are overwhelming. Why? God, I know I'm not perfect. I know there's things for me to improve on, things for me to grow in, but I am your child. I am an heir of yours. I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So why do I struggle with this? And some have asked that question for some time. Why the depth of adversity? Why the reality of suffering? I hear some say that as Christians, we, we need to name and claim. We, we need to find our position and our wealth in him and And that seems quite evasive to me. The section of this chapter that we find ourselves in begins to unravel some of the questions of our minds as it pertains to the suffering of our sonship. Look beginning in verse number 21, a bit further down in our passage. Verse number 21, but the creature itself also, now if you circle or underline things in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline those two words, shall be, shall be. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Look down at verse number 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, Why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Yes, child of God, we do suffer, but we wait with patience for the hope that is not yet fully realized. Now make no mistake, it is already fully promised. It is not yet fully realized. It is the promise of what we refer to as future glory. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse number two, we start to understand again some additional insights regarding the cross, the suffering of Christ. We we find our example looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. What is this? This is future joy. This is not joy fully realized right now. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And and where is he now? Set down at the right hand of the father. Jesus, our example, endured the cross with the expectation of what was on the other side. What is your cross today? It may come in different forms. In fact, it appears that Paul was acknowledging this very thing, the variety of the sufferings that the children of God actually endure. The the things that like, wow, I never expected that would happen to me. Or, Or this is what I'm facing. And it might look different than the next person or the next or the next. He begins to unpack this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse number 8, look at what he says. He says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. 
Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. You start to investigate, what do these words mean? Why does he use such a variety of descriptors to help us understand the, the, the focus or the singularity of suffering? Well, he does so, I think, because he's saying, hey, this is what I'm talking about here and here and here and here. For example, troubled. What does that mean? It means squeezed, pressure. Do you ever feel like, man, the world seems like it is closing in on me? I have a hard time breathing right now, the pressure that I am facing. He says, I understand that, that this is the reality of this fallen, broken world. He goes on and he says, says perplexed. This means I am puzzled. Mentally, I, I don't know exactly what to do. Well, what should I do here? This is, this is difficult to know. How, how should I proceed? What's right? What's wrong? He says, I, I understand then he goes on, he says, persecuted. That means pursued by those who are seeking to do us harm. There are those that are trying to bring about our demise. They, they want to see us stumble. And man, are they sometimes many. And he says, I understand. And then he says, cast down. Cast down. Sometimes we even say, oh, they're down right now. And I'm not talking about emotionally, although I think that could fit. Here, the idea seems to be some physical calamity, some physical problem that I am facing. It's like, man, I am down. I, I, I can't even get up right now. And all oh, the challenges that come when our physical bodies seem to be the recipient of the suffering that we face. Our suffering can come in such a variety of forms. And I don't know what you may be facing today. You might say, hey, listen, today I'm in those seasons right now where I am not suffering, but Oh, I have sensed it in the past and I anticipate that I am given to trouble, to difficulty, to trial, to suffering, to affliction, just like the sparks from a fire fly upward. The point is not our suffering is not a one size fits all. It does appear to come to all. Affliction, hardship, difficulty, suffering, sickness and death. They are all the realities of a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world. But when compared, let's turn the corner slightly. I know I face this incredible suffering. We do. But when compared to that which is to come, we start to see even our suffering in light of the other side. The other side of my suffering, even as we glory in the other side of the cross. The Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our, look at these words, light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Our light affliction, the weight of glory. Now again, please know, I, I am not in any way trying to diminish the weight of suffering that some in this room, some that are watching right now are enduring. It seems to be this weighty matter of suffering. I, I certainly wouldn't say anything other than the same. 
What he's doing is he's helping us with a matter of comparison. He's saying in light of what's on the other side, it is light affliction compared to the weight of glory. Yesterday, I went out into my front yard and I took a picture of the the weightiest thing that I could think of in my yard. And it's this, this stone that that marks our address 8784. And so I thought, I'm gonna bring that stone with me to church today. So I couldn't move it, okay? I thought about it, I mean, I went out there and I actually got the thing to move. I mean, I pulled on that rock and I got it to move, but there was no way I was actually going to get the thing to church today. Because of its weight, it was too weighty. It's a heavy stone. Now, I know, I, I know. There are some people in here that say, I could, I could carry it for you, Pastor. I know, and I don't like you, okay? So I, I get it. There are people who could have moved it quite easily, but I couldn't, and so the stone is there. Is that a weighty stone? It is to me the largest stone not a mountain, but, but a stone. This one was cut out of some quarry, I'm sure, and, and sold and someone bought it and placed it in my yard. The largest stone, cut stone, I have ever seen is in Jerusalem. If you ever have an opportunity to visit the Western Wall, you will go underneath, if you take this tour, underneath the Western Wall, just to the side, and they have tunneled out and you can actually put your hand on some of the rock that has been hewn in ways that confound archeologists today. The manner with which these foundation stones, the stones that that support the temple mount, they're quite remarkable. The largest of those temple mount foundation stones is just larger and about the size of what you would picture as a modern day school bus. The cutting of the rock is quite remarkable. The the measure with which it is cut with precision and then how these are fitted together. The weight of the rock is 570 tons and it was moved and put into place with other rock that begin to form this foundation and other things obviously built upon it. I wonder if we could go back and look at the stone in my front yard compared to the next picture that we have, which is 570 tons. One seems to have almost no weight at all compared to what is your suffering like today you say pastor today it is so weighty and I know it is just just like a little rock in my front yard to a person of my frame to a person of my limited strength to to move that rock and to to carry it if I had to I could but all the weight it would be to me compared to the future weight of glory. 
the, the, the rock that I've had my, my hand upon and run it along thinking, God, how in the world did this happen? How could someone move a rock of this size? And God says, now you might begin to have a picture of your own light affliction compared to the weight of future glory. The suffering that God has chosen for us today works for our benefit tomorrow. He is saying, I know there is suffering. He acknowledges that all throughout scripture, but he says, keep something in mind. Focus on something. We call this our hope. And when a Christian refers to hope, he's not saying, I hope so. He's saying there is something that I am certain of, but have not yet attained to or realized or touched or been the possessor of. It is my future hope. It's coming. I just don't have it right now. And he's saying that in the midst of your suffering, you hold on to your future hope. There's something in it for you today. In Isaiah 48, verse number 10, he says, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. In the furnace, he says, this is the place where I am doing something that could be done through no other means, no other way. What should I remember when I find myself in the furnace of affliction? I should first begin with God is always up to something good. God is always up to something good. I know God, but right now, oh, the, the, the pain of this suffering, I know. But I also know God and God is always up to something good. What should I remember? I should remember a difficult road doesn't always mean a wrong road. A difficult road does not always mean a wrong road. F.B. Meyer once said, if in an unknown country, I am informed that I must pass a valley where the sun is hidden or over a stony bit of road to reach my abiding place, when I come to it, each moment of shadow or jolt of the carriage tells me I am on the right road. What is there to expect in this world? Listen, the child of God understands 2 Timothy 3, 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What is it that I should remember? I should remember that God often removes the one thing so that he may replace it with something better. God often removes one thing because he is replacing it with something better. Isn't it interesting that you and I tend to rely on the thing that we know? I'm familiar with this. I'm comfortable with this. I'm okay with this. And God oftentimes says, I'm going to remove this because I want to replace what you're holding on to right now with something even better. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, we are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred. Fashion is destroyed, strength is melted, glory is consumed, yet here eternal love reveals its secrets. 
And lastly, what should I remember in the furnace of affliction? That affliction readjusts my dependence to where it needs to be. Affliction begins to do something to where my eyes have found some fixed point. Many times we we fix our attention on pleasure or comfort or health or supply or position or a relationship or whatever. And God says, oftentimes I will remove the thing that has arrested your attention that you have fixed your gaze upon so that you can adjust your gaze to where it truly should be. It was King Jehoshaphat, the people of Judah, who had an enemy horde that had come to them. They had been living comfortably. Things were functioning like they're supposed to function. Everyone was familiar with life and then the enemy arrives. And notice what the enemy produced in them that could have been produced through no other means. Second Chronicles 20, oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Let me ask you, whose attention did God now have? Everyone's attention. Child of God. What is it that we share with Christ as the children of God and joint heirs with Christ? A future inheritance that will not compare with our present suffering. It was John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who once wrote, suppose a century ago that a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, which he had just inherited, It was a vast and wealthy estate with a huge home complete with gardens and a staff of men and women to keep it all. But a mile away from the city, his carriage broke down, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should be to think that should we see him on that mile long walk, he would be wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. What shall I do? I have lost my carriage. Instead, we should expect to find that man walking with a spring in his step. Yes, his carriage is in fact broken. And yes, that is a problem. But it does not discourage him from soon, for soon he will have his estate. What is a broken carriage compared to the wealth that he is soon to take possession of. What do we have today in Christ? We have sonship. We are loved by the Father. We are led by the Spirit. What do I have coming? All that belongs to the Son. After all, I am a joint heir with Christ. And what do I have now? At times, shared suffering. It is suffering And some of it is indeed very hard. But what is that compared to the weight of future glory that is yet to come? May God help us on this journey to our full inheritance to receive even our suffering with joy 
in light of that which is yet to come.